This is The Busyness Podcast. I'm Emily Austin, founder of London-based PR agency Emerge. I'm passionate about launching and scaling small businesses, and I've been fortunate enough to work with some of the most exciting, category-defining brands in the world. I started my own business when I was fresh out of university in 2012, and since then, the world has become louder, our expectations have become harder to meet, and our lives have all become busier. We're constantly fobbing off friends with the stock answer we've all become accustomed to, I'm too busy. But when did being too busy become a mark of status? Why is the goal to never have any free time? And just what the fuck is everyone doing? In this podcast, I sit down with some of the most exciting entrepreneurs, CEOs and founders in the world, asking how they manage their time, their lives, their brains, and of course, their busyness, to find out how they're able to cut through the noise and create some of our favorite brands. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Busyness Podcast. Today I had the absolute pleasure of working with Eva Alexandridis, who is the co-founder of 111 Skin. Now you've probably seen their incredibly popular sheet masks. They are beloved by a series of celebrities, makeup artists and facialists. I mean, some of the names that they work with, Olivia Palermo, Ashley Graham, Rosie Huntington-Whiteley, Priyanka Chopra, Bella Hadid, Margot Robbie. I mean, the list goes on and on. Eva was so brilliant in this episode. She talked at length with me about how the business started, working with her husband, Dr. Yanis, and how science really is integral to and at the core of this brand that has an incredibly broad product range that really, really works. I was lucky enough to try some of the products and they are fabulous. The brand also is in over 85 luxury spas, hotels across the world and they have a flagship in Harvey Nichols and they're now in Harrods as well. But the list, I mean, it would be too long for an intro of how successful they are. We talked a lot about hiring people, growing the business and again, you know, longevity in business. I think it's really important to note that the business was founded in 2010 and it's not always easy, it's not always linear and it's not something that she's trying to make a quick buck from and get out of. Longevity really is important, integral and baked into this business, which I think is a really important lesson for people starting companies today. She's also an academic. She has a BA in international business and has a master's and talked also really openly about her childhood, her children, her family and how important that is to her and how she's managed to balance that in amongst running a successful business. I hope you enjoy the episode. I hope you have tried or will try the products. They're brilliant. And that you are able to take something away from this episode wherever you are in your entrepreneurial journey. I'd love if you could skim your CV for me and tell me a little bit more about what you were doing before 111 Skin. So I think my business side of things probably started in 1989. I was supposed to go to university in Moscow because we were part of the communist regime and communist countries. And I had this opportunity to go to the United States instead. It was a very, very rare opportunity because no one prior to 89 was able to travel. 
and I went to university in San Francisco. I went to a small liberal arts college, Golden Gate University, and then I studied master's. I finished my undergraduate, which was business, and then I did my master's, which was e-commerce which is completely obsolete now, but at the time it was a very, very um, important education because being in San Francisco and in Silicon Valley, that was the, the hub of all the technology, innovation. A lot of my friends were starting companies and it was the Silicon Valley boom. You say that it was unusual to do that, that that was a unique opportunity, certainly for you. Can you give us a sense of what else was happening in 1989 that made that so significant? I mean, you, you talk about Silicon Valley being booming or pre-boom. I guess for a lot of people listening, they may be more familiar with sort of the last 20 years. What else was going on sort of politically, culturally, socially at the time that made that so significant? Yeah, I think the, the very significant part was actually the fact that I grew up in a communist country. So we were completely isolated from the Western way of life, everybody in Bulgaria, which was also part of the former kind of Soviet Union sphere of influence, we all had a very simple, basic life. There was not so many goods that we can purchase. Everything was controlled by the government, the jobs. So I grew up in a way where I was really not, the consumer society was not known to me. Everything was very, very simplistic. I mean, I did have very beautiful childhood, but we were not exposed to many, many things in life. So we all lived in our small communities. And I think what I was alluding to is that when I went to the States, it was for me, it was like a complete shock because all of a sudden I was able to see the Western world, more kind of business savvy society where you know people can be entrepreneurial, they can grow in, you know, all sorts of different skills, not something that is kind of presets for them. And I think also not just the fact that I came from Eastern Europe into the Western world, but also I just happened to be at these really extreme times where the Silicon Valley got established, where people were innovating, they were creating, they were, you know, finding an opportunity to do whatever they felt didn't exist. They felt that there was the right to be able to, to establish new things. And to me, it was the shock was even more intense than many other people because the way I grew up in that simplistic environment into this kind of exuberant creativity was a um, really exciting time. And I think it shaped who I am at the moment. Sadly, after I graduated, I've worked for a few years with in the Silicon Valley with some high-tech companies, but also during my time in the San Francisco and in the Valley, it was the kind of the bust of Silicon Valley. So it was the beginning and then it was the end, which was also kind of a shocking time because I also saw that it's possible even with all this innovation, creativity, you know, there comes a time when businesses cannot really survive and it was very much back to how are things profitable and how can you have solid businesses that have a longer lasting impact. And what did that do for you in terms of your aspirations? You know, you obviously studied 
international business, you did a master's. Was an academic career always what you thought? Did you feel a sense of responsibility to go and do that? Or was your exposure to entrepreneurs something that started to create a fire within you? I definitely was more the environment and the exposure to the people around me. I think I thought I was having a phenomenal education, especially my master's in electronic commerce. You know, we were learning new languages and it was very exciting, but the the technology was moving so quickly that I feel that my education was actually obsolete just a few years down the road. So it, I just yeah. happened to, you know, find this, peak of time where everything was evolving so quickly, but it really had to do more with the environment, with the people, with the inspiration, with the, you know, the buzziness of trying to find solutions to things that have not been, didn't exist before. I had friends who, you know, they were starting, they started companies that still exist. A lot of my friends started companies that don't exist, but they were finding a niche in the market. And I think this definitely when I go back and when I look at, you know, we, my husband and I, my husband is a plastic surgeon. So I think if I wasn't in San Francisco at that time, I don't know if one of skin would even exist because I think it's hard to start a skincare company if you know all the odds, if you think like this, if you kind of like try to plot everything. But if you have this entrepreneurial spirit and you're curious and you want to do things, I think my education and my involvement in the Silicon Valley definitely have given me this kind of confidence that anything is possible. And if you find that there is something missing, then you can go for it. And it's opportunity. Yeah. You talked before about the business starting as a passion project. And I know that lots of successful people that I've had the pleasure of working with or get to speak to through the podcast. For many of them, it's the same. It's not necessarily a commercial business proposition in the early stages. It's something they really feel strongly is needed and it's something they, they're passionate about. From your perspective, what were the circumstances within which the business idea became a business and stopped being, I think you mentioned it sort of an, it was an offering, an extended offering within an existing business. At what point did you decide this has got legs to go as a separate business that I can run? I think first of all, we, my husband and I created, started 101 Skin because he felt that there is an underlying need in his business. He is an American board certified plastic surgeon. He trained in the States, he established his practice here where I'm sitting now in 2000. And he was using really good skincare brands in his clinic to help his patients heal post-surgery uh, and post-non-surgical treatments. However, they were quite reactive with the skin of, the, of his patients here. And in Europe and in, in the UK in general, People like milder, everything milder, milder, milder results of their surgery. Everything is uh, more tuned towards a more sensitive skin and more, more gentle experiences. So he was using American brands, which were a little bit harsh with the clients here. And when he was explaining to me that he's finding it challenging, a lot of the people are coming, they're not following the routines, they were... Uh, not listening exactly to the instructions, my my first question to him was, why don't you change to something that really works? And she was implying that actually doesn't exist to have a very high efficacy skincare 
but also for super gentle, sensitive skin. And I guess it's my my Silicon Valley upbringing. I said to him, well, if it doesn't exist, why don't you create it? And I think I probably would have never said this had I stayed in Bulgaria you know, and lived in, in this kind of rigid society and, and saying, well, if it doesn't exist, create it. So this was kind of the beginning of the business. And actually, you're right. It wasn't a business because for five years, he did go ahead and create the products and they they became a sensation in the clinic and they were given as part of a full ritual of treatments to speed up the healing post-surgery and post-non-surgical treatments. And they were given for free. So this was not a business venture in any shape or form. The only benefit that my husband was expecting from the creation of the products was to really make sure that his patients have the best possible quality of experience and it was just an addition to his services to make sure that it's a very holistic way of ending a surgery or a procedure where you apply product and it speeds up the healing. So it wasn't a business venture at all. It only became a business opportunity when Harrods came to us and we realized that there is a potential to take the brand outside of the clinic into a more commercial retail environment. And that's when we started thinking okay, there's an opportunity, how do we structure it and, and how can we make sure that it has a sustainable business to it? And how quickly after that moment, after that realisation and potentially retail opportunities with Harrods, you know, retail giant, how quickly did you realise the massive impact the product could have on people who weren't just recovering or looking for something either post-surgery or in some sort of you know rehabilitative sense how quickly from that moment did you say hang on a minute this is really exciting and um, there's a massive opportunity here not very quickly so we are quite conservative in our approach to everything we do so when we created the original products in the clinic and after that when we had the opportunity to launch with Harrods my husband actually didn't trust his uh, instinct and he didn't trust all the positive feedback we were receiving in the clinic because he was telling me patients, you know, usually they tend to like their surgeon. He was asking them, how do you like the, the products and how does it affect the result? Everybody was overwhelmingly positive, but this was in a very concise environment and he wanted to solidify the, the benefits of these products in a more scientific, professional way. So we did, before we agreed to launch with Harrods, we did a very extensive clinical study to make sure that it's not just the patients here, because it's easy to have clinical trials that are, you just ask questions and people overwhelmingly respond positive, but it's different if you do a scientific study, which is looking with a much more scientific measurement of the depth and size and the length of the wrinkles. So we did this study before we wanted to launch in Harrods because we needed that response, positive response and affirmation for us to be able to take the brand outside of the clinic and into the real world of really strong consumers. However, to answer your question, when we launched in Harrods, we were just on one little shelf and I stayed in Harrods for two years, not because there was no demand for the brand and we didn't have requests to launch in other places, but we really wanted to learn our consumer, to understand what they need. We wanted to understand the patterns of the consumer as well. And we took our time. So everything in our brand 
has a different kind of longevity that it happens, you know, in the last 10 years in the beauty industry, things are happening really quick. So if you can imagine the span was five years in the clinic, then two years in Harvard. We didn't open another account, which was in the U.S. in Barnes, another two years later. And then we went global with Netaporte, which was an international, they were able to ship globally. And then after that, the brand started evolving. But the first five to six years, it was really, we were learning. Because both of us are not from a strict beauty environment. We, have, we had a surgeon who was dealing with the science. We have a surgeon because he's still a surgeon. And then... I was very, very new. I had all these experiences. I had the ideas of what I wanted to do, but I definitely had not created a brand before. So we needed to take the time to really understand what the brand stands for and to implement all our ideas into this product. So we put all of our heart and soul into it, but we didn't have a five-year plan. We didn't have projections. We were just, we took everything super, super slowly just to learn the business because for us, the product represents us, and it was very important that people love the product, and it was every single person. You mentioned about not having specific beauty experience per se in that industry, and I, th- I wonder if that was an advantage to you, and I wonder whether there were any initial barriers to market when you started on the journey for the brand. Yes, I think now that the brand is in a different stage in its development. It's, it's a global brand. It's a much more serious brand. I now understand the benefit of having a stronger team around us versus the beginning when we started. But I think probably if it wasn't for us being the outsiders, if we had too many consultants and people around us, probably we would not have achieved what we have achieved. Because I think it took a lot of passion, a lot of dedication, a lot of effort. And kind of really not knowing what you're going to be facing. If you go kind of blind into it, you are driven only by your philosophy and and your ambition rather than people telling you what you can do and you cannot do. And I think it was a bit of a challenging decision for us to decide to launch a brand in Harvard so many years ago without having the knowledge of the industry but at the same time i think the fact that we brought something completely new and and revolutionary we brought ingredients that have not been used before in skincare i think that's what helped us to be established in an industry that is you know very marketing and very 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 marketing and product driven it's a very serious industry the beauty industry and very rarely an outside company without you know, very strong investment from some of the big conglomerates can establish a global presence. And I think, yeah, for us, the advantage was that we were outsiders, but we also, if I had started the brand on my own, I would not have been able to, this would not have been a successful brand because I'm one person, as I said, from Eastern Europe. I have a lot of ideas of how sensorially I want products to feel and look. But I needed the science, which is my husband. And I think without a plastic surgeon with the knowledge and expertise and and very, very deep understanding of the quality of the skin, we the brand could not have existed. But having said that, I don't know if my husband on his own, even with his thorough understanding of skin and you know the three-dimensional healing of the skin, 
he's, um, you know, a surgeon. He's an American board certified surgeon. He's performed 12,000 surgery up to date. And um, he's very strong in, in his knowledge of, of science, skin, and uh, the healing process of the skin. I don't think he would have been able to create a brand if he didn't have me as well. So I think this is a perfect example of two founders are better than one. He brought the science, but I brought more the sensorial and experiential part of the skincare brand. And I also helped him run it because he never stopped being a surgeon. He's still very much a practicing surgeon. Are there any drawbacks of your co-founder relationship? Because, you know, lots of benefits, presumably, but are there any any challenges with with having two founders? So far, we... We have not faced any challenges. I think it actually has only been extreme benefits for us and for the brand. But I think this has to do with the fact that we don't work together. We are rarely like nose-to-nose in the office. We do have uh, meetings about the science and the developments and the product ideas. But my husband is practicing plastic surgeon. He's five days a week in his clinic in 101 Hardy Street. Two days a week, he's in operating theaters, but he's based in his clinic. And uh, we have our, our own office, which is not in Harley Street. And we have 70 people that work for the one-on-skin side. So we're not working side by side, but we are very complementary with how we approach the development of the brand. And we're continuously learning from one another. And I think when you have two strong points of views, ultimately is really, really good for the consumer because we ended up with a brand that is highly, highly scientific, very, you know, medical derived, but at the same time, as you said, people fall in love with the brand. And I think this is the science plus the sensorial part, how the brand looks for me, packaging, sustainability, how people experience, you know, it's very sensorial the way you put skincare on your skin, you touch your skin. So this is definitely my contribution and it has worked really well. Then we have created something that is quite unique because we do have very medical brands which are not very beautiful on application and you have very beautiful brands, but they're not, you know, very, very strong with science. And I think that merge of the two is probably you needed two founders rather than one. Yeah, it sounds like the perfect match. I want to cast back to 2010, which is when you started one more on skin. You know, when we look at beauty brands now, the landscape is so different. There's definitely more medical brands. We look at kind of the the clean influence. There's a huge focus on being toxin-free, to your point earlier, being conscious of sustainability and a conscious consumer. We see brands launching through TikTok, spending vast amounts of money on influencers. People bring products to market really quickly and focus often now on real hype models on social media. It's a very different, potentially even a kind of post-Glossier type world with beauty. In 2010, when you launched, and I think this is a really important point because often on social media, we hear about people's aspirations to scale and launch and sell brands in one, two, three years, which doesn't seem to be really, well, it certainly is the exception if people manage to do that. But longevity is something that actually really matters and is important. In 2010, it was as social media was evolving. I think 2012, 
Uber launched in London. We had Twitter and Instagram launching. We had an explosion of online media with Daily Mail and lots of other publications online. Podcasts started to become an interesting vertical through audio. We also had a massive explosion of reality TV, which didn't exist before. So the way that people interacted with and viewed celebrity changed. For you at that time launching this business, can you tell me a bit more about what the market considerations were for you in 2010? Yes, I love to talk about this because it's something quite relevant for me at the moment. When we launched the brand, the beauty landscape was not the same. There were very few brands and most of them have existed for quite some time. In fact, we were very fortunate because Harrods was looking for a doctor medical brand. They were launching a lot of the Clarisonics and the different gadgets and they were actively looking for brands which they found it challenging to find. So it's very hard to imagine now because every single day there's a hundred brands launching. So it wouldn't be the case now. And when we launched, we had two, three doctor brand competitors. Most of them have been around for many, many years. You know, we've met with the founder of a brand called Revive. The doctor had been working on the brand for she, for many years. And he told my husband, you know, if this is successful, you have to stop practicing because the brand Oh, wow. It's all evolving and it's going to take you away from your practice. And I remember Yanni said to me then, I'm glad I have you because I really don't want to ever stop practicing because that's the inspiration for us. But I do have a serious concern about the industry at the moment. When, when we launched, we, as I said, we stayed in the same place for a few years. Then we moved, we had a retailer in the States, Barneys, which sadly doesn't exist now, but we stayed in Barneys for a few years. Then we launched with Netaport. So we had a very considerate growth. And what I'm seeing now, there's even incubators companies that are promoting the fact that you today, if you want to start a brand, they're saying that from an idea to actual on-shelf product, they can do that in six months. So this is absolutely a wrong way of developing brands. In order to test a product, you need 12 months. So if, you, if you're launching something in less than six months, this is ready-made formula that just has your label on it. So I think the industry is evolving in a direction which I personally don't love. I think it's too many people have the right to play in the beauty space. You have the celebrities, you have the incubator brands, you have you know influencers, everyone starting a brand. And skincare is a serious business. Skin is a living organ. It's 80% of you know our organs and it's the biggest organ in our body. And you need to treat it with respect, with integrity, but also really have a very clear understanding of what your skin needs. And I think a lot of people don't have the right to play in this industry. And just because you can be, you know, a social media sensation and overnight sensation. I think you have to really think what you're bringing on the table and you have to always think about the consumers, not not about you and your ability to create a brand. So I wish it was the landscape from 2010 where it was a few fewer brands, very solid brands, and the consumers were not bombarded. Of course, I think the industry has evolved and the fact that we have more interesting brands coming, it's also fantastic, but it's at a point where it's too many and what is happening in the industry is that you as a consumer you don't know how to make the right choices there's too many choices a lot of new 
textures, forms, shapes are being thrown at people, their routines are becoming extreme. And actually that can have a long-term impact on the quality of the skin. So my personal view is that 2000, okay, maybe was less competitive in a sense because you had only the big players and a few smaller brands. I mean, but now you have thousands and thousands of new brands and I think the consumer is, is confused. And I have, my husband is, is being asked simple questions like, do I use cream or do I use serum first? Things that many, many years ago were so straightforward, everybody knew. Now people are confused with the over exposure to many, many different products. They don't even know how to create a simple routine. Yeah, it's like decision paralysis, isn't it? And I think every time I go on TikTok or Instagram, there's someone promoting another product and you you do wonder if anyone's actually taken the time to use it to understand the impact it has on their skin. And it's interesting in the beauty industry because the fashion industry has had much more I guess whistleblowing about fast fashion and you know we know there's a cost of living crisis an ongoing crisis and fast fashion is often a choice for people who are unable to make a more sustainable choice because they are outpriced from that market and that's something that we've heard a lot about and see a lot about it's interesting that in the beauty industry, you know, a lot of these new brands are actually quite expensive. They're not necessarily offering cheap products. They are going in slightly higher. Why do you think there hasn't been this rebalancing yet in the beauty industry? Is it a regulatory thing? Is it is it the way that, to your point about these companies that expedite product to market with pre-made formulas. What what is what are your thoughts about why that hasn't happened and, and do you think that is coming? Well I certainly hope that there would be a rebalancing because you're absolutely right. We know about fast fashion. We know that it's not good for the environment. It's not sustainable. It's better to do quality rather than, you know, buy 10 cheap products than it's better to buy one. And I think with beauty there has I'm sure this time is coming very, very soon because it's becoming the same thing, but actually has a much higher implication because with clothes, they don't always have direct contact with your skin, with the living organ. And when it comes to skin, you have to be even more strict than what you're doing with fashion. It cannot be fast beauty. And you rightfully said, people don't take the time to actually, in order to see the benefits of a product, you have to use it for around 28 days because that's the natural set cellular turnover. So if you're putting five, six, seven products and you're buying something from TikTok and something from here and something from there, and also you don't, you're mixing and matching too many ingredients because a lot of these trends tend to be about specific products, but not necessarily about the quality of the ingredients. You're doing yourself a disservice and we as an industry as well. So I hope it's going to be a re- rebalancing of this. I hope people would I'm not advocating expensive products. I'm not advocating cheap products. I'm advocating quality products. So whatever they are, they don't have to be one-on-one skin. But I think you need to go back to simple, basic routines with quality ingredients. There's certain ingredients are not good for you. You know, the industry, there's enough science to know that that is telling us what are ingredients that can be harmful. And in so many products, you see harmful ingredients. I hope that the industry is going in that direction of really educating consumers how to treat your skin with respect and integrity. And this comes with a healthy skincare routine. 
you, it's not okay to over over you overuse acids, overuse retinols. It's not okay for your skin to be red, to be flaky. You know, this is this is what it used to be many many years ago. But the science have evolved. Now you have amazing ingredients, amazing textures that are going to give you fantastic benefits without having to have this over exposure to your skin. And and you you can do it with integrity. You see these industries sort of bloat, and we've seen it before in certain other industries, particularly in food and beverage and FMCG spaces. And it's so interesting how the bubble hasn't really burst with beauty yet you know I think there's been improvements for sure in the way that brands are more sustainable with their packaging obviously more and more brands increasingly are cruelty free which wasn't necessarily the case many years ago beauty brands looking at b corp status but I think it's really interesting that when you actually consider putting something on your skin and it absorbing you know it's almost with with skincare it's almost more poignant than deodorant. I know a lot of people have talked about natural deodorants, um, but with skincare, I mean, it's literally on your face. It couldn't really be any more, um, or it starts on your face, certainly. It couldn't really be any more poignant. Yet for some reason, I think people seem to discard some of the things that you've just said, and I think it's so interesting. I hope that the trend continues a little bit because during COVID, it was very much about skin. I think people understood that, you know, makeup is there to enhance skin because so many of us were not being able to go have meetings and people started falling in love with their skin again. And we saw a lot of you know, people showing real skin and having this harmonious relationship with, with themselves and with their skin, which is, I think it's so beautiful because beautiful skin gives you the ultimate level of confidence it's more than a bag or fashion or anything can give you if you if you love your skin you love yourself in a sense and people can see that so during covid we had this kind of going back you know skin first i think now it's starting again with more makeup and and i think also it's kind of the duty of the skincare companies but also the makeup companies because you don't want to mask your skin. The makeup should be there to enhance your skin. It shouldn't be there. Oh, it doesn't matter what kind of skin I have. I have this amazing makeup and I'm going to completely transform myself, which is shouldn't be the case because the more you pile on, the more your skin is suffering. So it has to be this relationship that transfers from its beauty overall. It's not just skincare, it's makeup and it's, as you said, perfume, deodorant, like what kind of perfume do you spray? I definitely have, you know, from spraying perfumes that are very harsh and then going into the sun, I do have this coloration that I cannot remove even with medical devices. So what you use has long-term effects on you. And and you're absolutely right. Like the industry, you know, some things are becoming more prevalent. When you mentioned animal cruelty, we as a brand, don't believe in testing on animals. This has probably cost us quite a few million pounds because we were not able to go into China because of that. And China has very strict rules on animal testing. So if you don't test, you don't enter the market. They're relaxing the rules and we're able to do this now. But a lot of our competitors were able to go years ago because they they were not against animal testing. But it's not something that we openly talk about. But now... A lot of consumers are looking for the nipping bunny. They want to make sure that the companies that they use are not doing animal testing, which is the positive thing of having social media and having much more awareness about products, companies, authenticity. 
I think another really positive thing about the speed of, you know, social media and being able to, as you said, the podcast, the Instagrams, the Twitters, it brings more awareness to the authentic stories. And we are speaking, the two of us, you know, I'm a founder of the brand. I think founders now have a more prominent space. People want to know if they're buying a product, who is the creator of the brand? What is their reasoning? Are they there, you know, just because they want to have a commercial success? Are they there because they saw something missing in the market? What is their motivation? How did companies start? What is the reason for companies to exist? So there is positive things of having a great amount of information, but it's also negative in a sense that everybody feels that they can enter this market. And just, you know, just a few days ago, I had an agent of a very, you know, very big person in the industry. And they were asking me, can we work with you to create a skincare brand for this particular person? And I said, why a skincare brand? And they said, well, when you, when you're a big celebrity and a big movie star, you do, you can do movies for a certain amount of time. And then what we want to do is now we want to create businesses and skincare and beauty is hot. So we want to enter into this. So it's looked more from a business perspective, like where are the opportunities? What can we do? And I think it's the wrong way to look at things. I probably know the answer to this, but what's your opinion broadly on on those kind of collaborations where celebrities sort of co-sign a brand, but perhaps they're quite quickly accelerated to market? Do you feel like they have a, a bigger responsibility in many ways to do the due diligence because they have this huge influence over over many, many followers. Everybody can start a business. Everybody has the right to start a business. It's, it, it depends how vested you are because I know for sure that one of our skin, if my husband is not a practicing plastic surgeon and if I'm not full-time working in the business, the business wouldn't be where it is at the moment. So if you're a celebrity and if you want to dedicate your time and energy into creating a company, beauty company, gin company, any kind of company, but if you definitely give your, your time, your energy, and you'll be there contributing continuously, I think it can be something really successful. But if it's 5% of what you do, then it's just a business venture that just has been highlighted as an opportunity. If you, I am 100% in this business and I think if I'm 99% of the business will be even less successful because it, it requires this type of dedication, which is all consuming and you cannot stay on top of product development, innovation, logistics, creation, if you, if you're not fully involved as a person. So there are successful celebrity brands, but I think the celebrities are really there driving it and they are. It's their goals, their ambitions, their innovation. It's coming across. And I think that's what you need, authentic people. Sticking with the celebrity theme, you've had a phenomenal number of celebrity brand fans. I mean, the list is so long that we don't have time, but to name a few, Olivia Palermo, Ashley Graham, Rosie Huntington-Whiteley, Priyanka Chopra, Bella Hadid, Margot Robbie. I mean, it's literally like a dream faces board for any brand. How conscious was your pursuit of those VIPs? Did they come to you and how beneficial have they been for the brand in terms of exposure, marketing, PR, etc.? 
from the beginning of the brand, we did not have this um, very serious plan on what we want to achieve. And our successes are really due to, to the fact that we are always a smaller brand and we were kind of thinking out of the box. So when it comes to the celebrities and the makeup endorsements, this actually happened because we started working backstage with fashion designers. We were starting to prep the skin and we were so well received from the makeup artists, hairdressers, because they were seeing almost immediate results with some of our products. Most of our products, we don't advocate overnight results. We want the people to use them for, as I said, minimum of one month, really allow your skin to absorb and have the retro with the product so you can see the results. When it comes to masks, for example, you mentioned the departing mask, they are meant to have an immediate effect on the skin. So we didn't personally have the relationship with, with the celebrities that you mentioned. It all came from the people that are behind the scenes, making sure that they look the way they look. So it's usually makeup artists. And we were so lucky that they started loving and endorsing our products. And that's what gave us all this amazing publicity. But it's not us getting in touch with a publicist or a, a PR person from any of these celebrities and saying, by the way, we have this product, try it. it. It has been very, very organic. However, if the product didn't work, we would have never received this kind of overwhelming positive feedback because we, we never paid anyone. This was not part of our overall marketing budget or strategy. It was very much these people discovered us. They saw something very different with our products and they do what they say. We have, even when it comes to, to the masks, for example, you said depuffing mask. This mask depuffs the skin and it has the effects of cryotechnology on the skin. When it comes to a radiance mask, it gives you radiance. You would not have depuffing if you use the radiance mask. We have a black mask, which is lifting and firming. So even when it comes to the masks, they are beautiful, they're sensorial, but they are very targeted solutions, which have been worked for many, many years together with you know, my husband, and we use technology that is extremely advanced. The technology of our mask is biocellulose technology. This is used in medical, in, in hospitals for wound healing. Everything that we use, it's not, it's not just sensorial product. It has very, very strong scientific background to it. Do you take time out to enjoy when the business does well? Is it a relentless pursuit or do you still get excited when you see an email saying you know, someone at the Oscars really wants it or an email coming in from someone that you admire in society. Does that excite you or are you sort of, is everyone the same now? It's not the celebrities per se or the society people that excite me because I know it's people behind the scenes. So the people that I have actually have very strong relationship with some of the makeup artists, hairdressers and, you know, even photographers is because I know it takes an army for these people to are who they are. And, and to be part of the prep, you have to have quality. You have to have the best quality. So my allegiance is really from the people behind the scenes. These are the people that I love, respect. I actually want to, I personally make an effort to get to know them. It's not, I don't aspire to meet the stars. I aspire to meet the people behind the scenes. And occasionally I do. There was a vote party in Annabelle's in this beautiful London club. And it was full of stars. It was all the big celebrities from all over the world. It was, I think, the best of all party. And I met a few people, like Ashley Graham. Graham was there, and Sarah Sampaio was one of the first models to use the mask, and you know some actors. And I went up to them and I said, 
I am Eva Alexandridis, I'm the co-founder of Honor's team. And it was amazing that they were all, some of them hugged me. They said, thank you so much. Wow. This beautiful brand. But I have to give full credit to the people behind the scenes. Because if it wasn't for them, none of these celebrities would know who we are. Because we don't have this kind of budget to you know, pay for like long-term contracts and, and have their endorsements. So it comes really organic. But it's from really from makeup artists. So thank you. I think the makeup artists have built um, built my brand. But you asked another question, which is, do I switch off? And I have to say, I wish I can switch off more. I think running a business is extremely difficult. And I do, you know, watch a movie with my kids and check on my phone. And my little twelve-year-old is telling me, "Mama, stop it! You, you know, don't be on your phone now." But I do have moments when I completely switch off. I love running in the park. There's no phones on our dinner dinner table, for example. We always sit together, have dinner with the kids, and the phones are as far away as possible. And we do think, you know, summer holidays together and skiing holidays. And you have to switch off because when you switch off as an entrepreneur, and I encourage everyone to do that, you actually do yourself a big service because your brain actually accumulates all these new ideas when you don't have the heaviness of the day-to-day running of the business and you when you take a step back this is when I get the most exciting creative ideas of you know how to advance the business so holidays are necessary for entrepreneurs. I want to talk to you about social media we we hear a lot about unrealistic standards on social media you know I personally think that social media is is a marketing tool and my interaction with it is always with a very specific desire for an outcome because I think that that is the right way to use it sort of to stay sane as well we touched on it earlier perhaps about people's misunderstanding entrepreneurs misunderstanding about the time it takes to build something of value do you have a good relationship with social media personally and sort of professionally has it been a very important part of growing the business for us, I cannot turn my back on social media because even what the, the celebrities and the people you've mentioned, they, we have discovered them on social media and they have posted our products on social media. And there was a time when social media helped the brand when we were tiny and we had no budgets and they kind of amplified the positive results of the masks and of our, of our products. And I also think we kind of caught social media at this really interesting period where from being overly staged a few years ago it kind of became more this is who I am this is my personality so people started showing themselves you know in their bathroom putting a product on with no makeup it was kind of like a little bit of a backlash towards overly staged posts and you started seeing big you know people from the industry and I'm not talking just about celebrities I'm talking about sports people ballerinas, authors, you know, people that were kind of saying, I want to express myself and I want to show you what I do. And beauty was quite prominent in in their self-expression. So for us, social media has been good. My personal relationship with social media is I try to stay quite real. I definitely don't use any filters. I don't allow filters. I think it's very important as a beauty company to be able to show things as they are, even if they're not perfect, you know, with long-term skincare, you can make things perfect. So I have had situations where I've even hired people to run my social media. And I have found myself struggling because even that is time-consuming. 
So what I find recently is just, you know, I just kind of sporadically post when I want to post and it's not perfect, but I'm not an influencer per se. I'm, I run a company and my main duty is about running the company and what I put on social media, just a tiny little percentage of what we actually do. You have a family run business. You've talked about your relationship and influence of your mother, your grandmother. You have two teenagers, two sons. You mentioned a moment ago about sort of family time, holidays, even just having dinner together, not being on phones. How important for you has family support been running a business as a woman, as a mother, um, with all the responsibilities that come along along with that? Oh, absolutely crucial and so instrumental. I would not have my business if it wasn't if my mom was not actively helping me. I was pregnant. When I we, start, we first started developing the products, I was pregnant. My son is now 18, so that's 18 years ago. And I gave birth to my second son as we were launching the brand in a retail environment. Uh, so that's 12 years ago. So both times I needed my mom because when you launch a business, first of all, you have to travel extensively. I was sourcing my own packaging, my own, everything was sourced. I didn't have consultants. I had to go and find cups and bottles and airless packaging and all sorts of things like paper boxes. And then now it's even more demanding. I mean, the business now is at a stage where it's, we're a global brand. So I have to travel. If I looked at my last month's schedule, I was in Asia, Hong Kong, Shanghai, Thailand. Now I have to go to Chicago in the next few days. So I could not have done the business if I didn't have someone at home really helping with the children my mind would not have been I would not have been able to stay focused on expanding the business so family support is absolutely crucial and it doesn't have to be family for some entrepreneur starting now but somebody that you can trust it's very important then when you travel and when you're in another market as we said you have the time to be in that market and really stay focused rather than being worried about, are your children okay? Is anybody able to attend their play? So I always have yeah. things scheduled when I'm away. So so very crucial. Try to surround yourself with people that can help you on the journey and don't try to do it on your own. What's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given about building a business? To be honest with you, I don't remember one piece of advice. I definitely know that when I started <laughs> the business, one friend of mine, her name is Vasiliki. She she runs the Unilever Ventures. She told me it's gonna take seven years for this business to kind of like take off. And I didn't think. I, I looked at her and I said it's probably gonna take me two three years. Actually, it's yeah. taken me more than ten years. So in a way, you know, we're both wrong, and it's taken yeah. longer. So my advice to everyone is that's why I have this relative concern about companies launching so quickly because I don't think people really understand how long it takes to establish properly establish a business and how time consuming it is to run it and it should be something that you have a very long-term view on it it's not an overnight success story do you have any mantras that you live by personally or professionally that help you yes the one there's a few things one is do good and good things will happen to you. This is my leading mantra for even before I started the business. I just, I always fall back into this. Whenever I have 
concerns which direction to go. I always try to pick the one that is just better for everything, for me, for the environment, for the people around me. And also um, someone that works for me taught me something like a year ago, and I've been using it quite often. This lady said that if it's not going to matter five years from now, don't don't spend more than five minutes worrying about it. And it's really surprising how many things, when you look at it this way, actually do not have a long-term implications, but we spend so much time really stressing about it and we shouldn't. How do you define success? Considering how I grew up, I grew up in a very, very simple upbringing and as I said, we lived in a time where, you know, our stores didn't have shelves. We barely had we had just enough food, but there was nothing excessive available to us. And, you know, life was kind of plain in a sense. And we had to entertain each other with playing with one another. And we didn't have that many stimulations from things and from consuming goods. So... I feel very successful every single day just because I remember my upbringing. I know where I started and I don't know how I'm so fortunate to be where I am because and I had a simple, simple upbringing and now my life is, is quite colorful and it's very unique and it's every single day I do something different than the day before. And, and I definitely wake up every morning thinking that I'm very fortunate. But success per se, on the business side of things, I think it has to be, you have to be able to have solid business with long-term longevity. And you also have a very strong responsibility for the people that work for you. So you have to make sure that the business is at a stage where these people who have chosen you over many other jobs are can have long-term career with you. So for me, success is longevity and stability. Productivity can be challenging. We read a lot online about how we can all be more efficient. You're running a global business, traveling lots. You have a family, you have children. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? If I had an extra hour, I think I would spend it on my own, which rarely happens. You know, I work my normal eight four hours and I love to run home and spend time with the family. So I wish there was an, a, another hour where it's kind of like, I know I would have my family and I know what my business, but I would have this one time just to myself and that rarely happens. After so many years of running the business, I think I have a relatively good structure and I have created a balance. We love running in the morning. I like doing cryotherapy. I like to do things in my day that are very much about my mind and then I have my work and then I have my family so I have compartmentalized my life in a way that works. What's next for you and for the business? What can we expect to see for the rest of this year and beyond? What is next for the business is very much more of the same. I'm quite content now. I have a very strong leadership team and what we're doing we are Instead of overexpanding the brand, we are looking at every single location where we are and trying to make it more impactful, better communication, direct communication with our clients. So places like Carrots, Selfridges, Fifth Avenue, Neiman Marcus. And I'm super excited for our spa business. We are very, very fortunate because we're in 85 five-star properties globally. 
some of the most beautiful properties, Four Seasons, Mandarin Oriental. We have a global partnership with Amman Resorts. We have some stunning Kempinski hotels in Europe. And so what we want to do is we want to take the spa business into a much more experiential level. We already have beautiful body and facial treatments, which are very much about surgical precision rituals, but we want to create, bring more Harley Street experiences, more of the science and combine it with the sensorial experiences of the spa and elevate the experience to be science, rituals, and body confidence. Fabulous. Well, we can all look out for that. That sounds amazing. Eva, thank you so much for your time. I know you're busy. I think the people listening will be hugely grateful for your honesty and for you sharing so candidly your story and more about your business and your aspirations. It's certainly going to help a lot of people at many different stages of their entrepreneurial journey, both in this industry and and otherwise. So thank you for your time. And um, I very much enjoyed chatting to you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And any other questions if people might have? Please feel free to reach directly to me.